Hey there. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. And just so you'll know, the celebration of 50 years of marriage will be kind of the culmination of this message, so we invite you all to stay and participate in that. However, we do understand that there may be some of you who need to scoot right at the end of this message, and we'll give you a five-minute scoot time, (laughs) so that if you need to do that, or if you need to run rescue the child care, or to get your children, whom we love dearly, Get those children whom we love dearly uh, from the childcare area. You can do that as well. Today, I thought I would really tackle some practical application teaching from God's Word about meaningful marriage. Because those of us who have been married for a number of years, Joy and I now, will be this summer will be 41 for us, and we get people asking us, what do you do to stay married that long? And I thought it would be good to answer that question with a sermon. So that's kind of what this is about. It's answering the question, how can you have a meaningful marriage that lasts and one that's biblical? And that's where we're going today with this message. These are six things that people, I would have done seven, but we're trying to condense everything. (laughs) Six things people say in a meaningful marriage. That's what you have in your fill-in-the-blank sermon notes there. I'm really dating myself here. There's an old movie called Love Story. Just way back. It's probably available on VHS somewhere. I mean, we're, we're talking way back. But they had a song on there that made it into the top 40 charts on the radio. It's love means you never have to say you're sorry. And it's so ooey gooey. Do you think that that is a true statement? <laughs> That's right. It is not a true statement. Love means that you're constantly going to have to say you're sorry. The truth is, all of us, if we could just stand up at the beginning when we say our vows and say, honey, I'm going to tell you today that I love you, and that if that ever changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) Not the way it works. There are many, many times when we're going to have to say, I'm sorry. Why is that? It's because those of us who understand this old nature that the Apostle Paul talked about in Romans 7, where we do the things we don't want to do, and we don't do the things we know we should, that's that old sinful nature that we're kind of at a tug of war with, as God is transforming us bit by bit to be more like Him. And so there's this transformation process, and we don't always win. And which means that sometimes we get convicted by the Holy Spirit, as it talks about in John 16. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised after He ascended, that the Spirit, the Comforter, this third part of the triune Godhead would come and indwell, live in the hearts of all believers. And one of His jobs is to convince people like me that I'm wrong when I'm actually wrong. And yet, when the Holy Spirit convicts me, it's usually because I can see the pain in my wife's face, face, and I know that I've caused that pain. And so, rather than to say, hey, I told you way back when we were married that if that ever changes, I'd let you know, I have to realize that that means I have to say, I am sorry. That was wrong of me. It was my sinful nature that crept up in there. That was my pride at work, whatever it is. I am terribly sorry. And I think we have to say that multiple times a day in many marriages if it's going to be a meaningful marriage and a marriage that lasts. 
When you hurt your spouse because two have become one, you're actually hurting yourself. That's something that I started to realize about year 16 into our marriage. I had slid into this workaholism, and because I was a pastor, I could justify it by saying, well, I'm doing God's work, so it's got to be okay. Even if I neglect my wife, even if I'm only bringing home work-related problems and stress into my wife's life, I could justify that or try to. And I found out, no, when I hurt my spouse, I'm only hurting myself because the two shall become one. So we have to say I'm sorry a lot in a meaningful marriage. Number two, since you can't read my mind, fill in the blank. We need to say that often because what I find is that we slide into these silences that can go on sometimes for days on end. And now this is something I've heard not from my own family, but I've heard from some other people, that occasionally you'll have a woman that will say, why am I so mad? I'm mad because he doesn't know why I'm mad. (laughs) Not real fair. You see, because if you don't know why he's mad, that means that he needs to share why he's mad, or there may be something else going on under the surface that he hasn't let you in on. And so because we can't read each other's minds... We need to be honest with one another about why we're acting a certain way or feeling a certain way, which may or may not have anything to do with our spouse. Love means without a word you understand. That's the second line in that song. Love means without a word you understand. Is that true too? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) There is a, a myth that goes out there because of uh, movies and ooey gooey depictions of love, that if I meet that soulmate, they're going to know what I'm thinking without me having to even utter a word. And I would say, absolutely not. That is so false. In fact, I heard, uh, I wish I would have gotten the guy's name because I was driving and didn't write it down. It was on NPR about a month and a half ago or so, an interview with a guy who wrote a book on this very subject. And he says, it's impossible for us to read each other's minds, which is why we need to start working more diligently at sharing what's really going on up here with one another if we're going to have a real relationship and one that lasts the tests of time. Love does not mean that without a word you're going to understand. We have to share that. And even Ephesians 4.25 tells us this. Paul is talking specifically to church people about that, but it certainly can be applied, I think, as well to couples. Stop lying to each other. Tell the truth, for we are parts of each other. And when we lie to each other, we're hurting ourselves. And when we say, somebody says, well, how are you? You seem a little tense today. Oh, I'm fine. (laughs) No, nope, you're not. Not when you act like that. That's lying to one another. If we're trying to push something down and not be honest about how we're feeling, we're lying to one another. And Paul says, stop it. Just stop it. That's the tone that he was using in the Greek. (laughs) Stop it. There was one couple that I knew about where the wife was chipper and early riser. She could bound out of bed early in the morning and the birds would sing outside the window. And she would throw open the curtains and a ray of sunlight would stream into the bedroom. And she would say, good morning, dear husband. How are you? I've made you a wonderful breakfast. Wouldn't you like to come and eat now? And he would roll over and bury his head in the pillow and go, (laughs) he was not an early riser. And it took a few weeks of their new marriage together before he was able to be honest with her and say, 
I really appreciate the fact that you make me breakfast. That is such a sacrificial, wonderful servant thing to do. My stomach doesn't wake up until about 10.30. (laughs) And if it's okay with you, I'll just grab a cup of coffee and head to work, and you can skip the breakfast. It's no slam against you, really. Don't take this personally, but I'm not an early riser, just in case you haven't noticed. They had to work out something like that. That's a part of learning to share honestly what's going on with one another rather than pretending like everything's okay when everything's not okay. I'm disappointed because I thought this is something really instructive and helpful for both people in a relationship to share with one another. I'm disappointed because I thought... Now, here's another way of saying that. But you said, and I quote... Huh? Because we keep careful journals sometimes in the backs of our brains, don't we? And yet sometimes the memory on the part of one spouse may be a little different than the memory on the part of another. Sometimes there are other things that crowd for space in our brains. And uh, I've heard that it's a sign of genius for us to forget things now and then. (laughs) And I'm going with that. So sometimes instead of saying, but you said when we talked about this, remember it was last Wednesday, 3.38 p.m., and you said, and I quote, instead of saying that, how about if we step back and say, well, yeah, I am a little disappointed. I noticed that you are mentioning to me that I look disappointed. I am because my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, but my understanding was we talked about this, and I thought we were going to go do this Friday night, and so now I'm finding out that that's changed. That was not your understanding. You see how honest that was? But do you also see how I'm taking ownership for my feelings about that and my understanding of a conversation rather than throwing blame at somebody else? A very different situation. When we stop throwing blame darts at our spouse and we start owning our own feelings, things can start to open up and we can solve problems rather than rack up points. Could we talk about why I reacted this way? Isn't it good sometimes to do just a little debriefing Sometimes you need to wait until you've slept on it, until you've had a good breakfast after 10.30 (laughs) a.m. And you need to be able to say, I would like for us to do an autopsy of that awful time we had discussing something that turned into an argument. There may be some things that you were not aware of that I had been through that day when I got home. Can I tell you about that? You see how I'm owning my own responsibility for what's happening here rather than throwing blame at somebody else? That's the kind of phrase we can use when we're trying to do that. Or how about, I notice, honey, that you seem a little anxious. Did something happen at that meeting that you attended? That's no blame. It's not saying, well, look at you all huffy-puffy. How did you get to be this way when you came home from work? Rather, it is constructive. It's an observation. It's not throwing blame. It's only saying, I notice that this seems to be, from my perspective, happening. Can you shed some light on that? My lovely spouse has learned to do this through the years, and she is so tactful in the way she can do that now. She would say things like, Honey, I find it interesting that the rear bumper of that car in front of us seems to be encroaching within the range of being quite close to the front bumper of our car. (laughs) I wonder why that might be. She can say things so tactfully. If you say things like this, it gives the other person a chance to process it without feeling threatened, and they can say, yeah, you're very observant. As a matter of fact, things didn't go so great at that meeting, and I got heaped upon with more responsibility, and I'm kind of mad right now, 
And so uh, I hope that I'm not taking it out on you, but yeah, you're, you're reading me correctly. I am anxious. Sorry about that. But you see, we're talking it out rather than acting it out. And if we can talk things out, it might help keep us from acting out in a way that harms our spouse. Third, hey, let's dream together. That's something that couples can forget to do over time because life happens and it comes at us fast and responsibilities pile up, our calendars get filled up, and we just have no room for anything related to the couple because we're always solving everybody else's problems. So we need to learn to dream together. We're supposed to be together. The Bible says so. This is about marriage. It's at the foundation of marriage. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. You probably heard some of those good old-fashioned uh, Holy Spit preachers that pound on the pulpits, and they would talk about leaving and cleaving. Can I get an amen? That's right. Leave, you have to leave your immediate family so that you can cleave and make a new family, cleave to your wife. And when they use, use the term cleave, there's a word that it's almost like super glue. You can't pull them apart. If you try to pull them apart, it will rend them asunder, which means it will rip them in half. So that means we're supposed to be together on everything, including dreaming together. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, Paul was meaning this toward the church in general, but it certainly does apply to couples. Look not only to your own selfish interest, but be thinking about the interest of your spouse and how you can start dreaming together and molding your two slightly divergent dreams into one convergent dream. John and Pat, good example of that. Unfortunately, a negative example. I loved them both. One of them was my Sunday school teacher when I was a younger kid. Great people. He was a deacon in a church. She was a Sunday school teacher. She loved to work with youth. They were both active. They both read their Bibles all the time. And yet, when John would get home from work, he had a certain set of interests, and he would get busy doing the things he loved to do. He started teaching himself to play the piano and so he would go off into the other room and start learning his little piano book and going through that. And then he would listen to other music by putting on his headphones and he'd be in the other room. Pat would be in the kitchen making dinner. She took care of their two boys. She became a real estate agent. She was gone a lot, started becoming gone more and more and more. And after a while, they just kind of went through some separate paths until they weren't dreaming together at all. I wish I could say it was a happy ending and that they realized the error of their ways and they repented from that, and they got back together again, but they didn't. And unfortunately, John and Pat got a divorce. It can happen to really well-meaning good people because we forget to dream together. Boy, that's important. With us, the big dream that started to really meld us together after we had started to drift because I was getting too busy with my work was a Colorado vacation. The reason I didn't want to dream about it is because it costs money. And I'm wired in such a way that when you start talking with money, my left hip twitches <laughs> because I've got a nerve that goes right to my wallet. And I would shut down the dream because I would say, oh, we can't afford that. And she would say, but we've got a dream together. So I started saying, okay, let's tackle this from a different perspective. What would it take for us to do that? How long would we need to work? How much do we need to set aside if we're going to make that happen so that we don't break the bank and go into debt? Suddenly, we start making decisions together. We start dreaming together. We start talking about, well, let's put that on the calendar. Let's actually make a date. Let's push for that. And suddenly, we find that we're giving up things for each other because it's a common dream. And so if I give up uh, a night out 
for the movie with my wife, it's because she wants to give it up so we can put that money in the bank for the Colorado vacation. It's both of us together learning to sacrifice for one another toward a common goal, and that's what happens when we dream together. When you dream together, you make decisions together. And making decisions together means that you have to give up a little of your own selfish pride because sometimes we need to admit that my wife is... My wife is... That's it. My wife is right. And she is right many more times than I would like to admit. (laughs) Number four, I am so proud of my wife or husband. These are things that meaningful marriages, you hear said a lot in those meaningful marriages. I heard it a lot growing up, fortunately. I'm really grateful for that. My mom would see my dad coming home from work and she would say, isn't your dad the most handsome guy on the planet? Now, I thought he was because she just kept saying that. And I I think he may have been. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. (laughs) But my mom would constantly compliment my dad. She would say to my sister and me, wow, your dad can do these great figures in his head. So if I have a math question, all I have to do is ask your dad. He was really good at what he did, but she would point those things out to us. And then my dad, in turn, would do the same thing for my mom. He would say, in her presence to us as kids, your mom is really a good speaker, and she's going to speak to a whole bunch of women, and I'm talking a whole bunch, like 10,000 at a conference center, at a national conference next weekend, so that's why she's going to be gone. But the reason she's going to be gone is she's just that good. He would build her up in front of us so that we would think, wow, my mom's one of the smartest moms I know. She's pretty special. So that we can be proud of each other and we're building each other up. That's something we need to do for, for one another. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. See, if we're in rivalry with our spouse, then we're competing for the limelight. We will build ourselves up and sometimes we'll try to put that spouse down because it makes us feel better. And the Bible's saying we need to flip that around. The more you build up your spouse, the more they're going to want to build you up. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. All these things are aimed at the church, and all of them match when you line them up with marriage. They're reinforcing character through compliments. If we want our spouse to behave that way, why not just reinforce that they are that way? That's what we do with compliments. When you put down your spouse, you're putting yourself down. That's what Paul is trying to talk to us about every time he gets practical with this stuff. We shouldn't be demeaning that other person because if the two are becoming one, you're actually just demeaning yourself. What you're saying is, yeah, I didn't have a lot of wisdom when I made that choice, did I? That, That doesn't reflect very well at all on you. So build them up. Don't put them down. We shouldn't be putting down our spouses. I'd like to camp out for this about five minutes on sowing and reaping because this is so valuable. This is where this principle comes into play. And this is one of those biblical principles that applies to everybody on the planet, whether you're a believer in Christ or not. This is just a lifelong principle as steady as gravity. I think this is a principle that we can all learn from. Galatians 6, 7. Don't be misled or don't be deceived, says one translation. You cannot mock the justice of God, or God cannot be mocked. You will always harvest what you plant. You will always reap what you sow. And there are three aspects of this. You reap what you plant, you reap more than you sow, and later than you sow. You always reap what you sow. In other words, I don't go and throw a bunch of wheat kernels into the ground and say, oh, I wonder if the corn is coming up next week. 
You can't do that. You always reap what you sow. It's going to be the same kind coming back at you. So if we're planting divisive things, sinful things in our spouse's life, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from the sinful nature. If we're acting on those impulses that come from the old nature, that sinful nature that Paul talks about in Romans 7, if we're doing that most of the time, if that's what we're sowing, what do you expect to get back out of your marriage? Well, you're not going to get goodness and light and compliments from your spouse. But those who live to please the Spirit, he says, in positive contrast to that in Galatians 6, this is the second half of 6.8, those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. That's a spiritual principle, and it can be very practically applied to marriage as well. If you plant seeds of doubt and discouragement in a marriage, you can't expect to reap confidence and encouragement. Not going to happen, because you always get back in kind what you planted. B, you always reap more than you sow. This is always true. Any good farmer will know that. John 12, 24 says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, there's another good principle here because we need to die to self, if it dies, it remains, uh, unless it does that, it remains alone. So if you just set it on a shelf, it's there alone. It's not going to reap anything. It's not going to come back any stronger or any uh, more plentiful than if you put it in the ground. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest. So if we die to self and we're raised up to be a new creation in Christ, then all of a sudden we're going to start to act like the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is coming out of our life rather than the fruit of the flesh, and that's going to be what starts to multiply itself. In, uh, well, it's 40 minutes, so maybe 30 miles southwest of here in Tecumseh, Michigan, there's a guy named Perry Hayden. You might have heard of Perry Hayden and the Hayden Mills that was out there. The, the big mill building is the first one you see driving in on M50 going in toward Tecumseh. It's still there. Uh, this was a big deal back in the tithing wheat days. He decided as a Quaker going to the Fringe Church out in Tecumseh that he was going to take God at his word. He was going to plant a small little one inch, one cubic inch of seeds and plant that and then tithe a tenth of that to his church so they could turn it into bread, flour for bread or whatever they wanted to do with it. And then he would replant the rest of that and do that for six years in a row, six seasons, and then rest on the seventh because that was a scriptural principle. So he starts to do that. And this is what grew from that first little group of seeds. 1940, 360 seeds. That's what he got, all right? He started that and... He got the whole church out there. He and his wife prayed for that. The church prayed for it. And they said, God, teach us some principles about multiplication for those who will tithe and give to you right off the top what belongs to you. Any guesses as to how much that grew over that six-year period? 1946, 72,150 bushels were harvested. Incredible. Henry Ford heard about it. He got so involved that he started loaning a whole bunch of his fields, his property, so that they would have enough fields to do this on because it wound up taking acres and acres and acres to be able to do this kind of harvest. Uh, at one point, about the season five, Henry Ford became ill and word got out to Hayden and said he's not going to be able to help you with his farm implements that they were doing. They were bringing tractors and farm threshing materials and all this stuff from uh, Greenfield Village to help him with this project. And so he said, well... When all else fails, we go to praying. And so he and his church started praying. And all of a sudden, they woke up the next morning when they were supposed to start the harvest. And he heard engines running. And a whole bunch of volunteers from all over the county started to come with their own tractors. And they made it happen. And they harvested all that. 
Interestingly enough, and this is really cool because we're starting to see when people put God first, not only in their lives, but especially I'm applying this to marriage. When they put God first in their marriage, you can see that it becomes greater and greater the abundance that we reap from what we're sowing into that marriage. He sent one-tenth of those 72,150 bushels down to uh, a baking company in Ohio. And they actually made so much cereal from that that they were able to send a huge load of that by airplane over into war-torn Europe to help bless other people with that. So that was just something to show it that we're always going to reap greater whatever we sow. And then we always reap later than we sow. We can't expect to have instant marriage and for you to turn around and say, well, how come she's not doing everything perfectly right now? I thought this was going to work out great. You know, we'd say, I do's, we go home, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Here's a good verse for us. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Now, what we have, because of the ooey-gooey definitions of romance and marriage that we see in media, that our marriage is going to be like this. It's going to be a bouquet of flowers. It's going to be perfect. It's going to look great. It's going to smell great. But here's what we get when we get married. <laughs> we get a do-it-yourself flower-growing kit. And you have to cultivate the soil. You have to get the water. You have to put on the fertilizer. You have to do the work of getting the weeds out of there. You've got the work to do before those flowers will look like that. And so what, what happens is we look to God's word for these principles whereby we can do the work to start creating a marriage that's going to be meaningful and that's going to last. Number five, I want to solve this problem, not just score points. That principle is so important because all of a sudden, instead of saying we have a problem because our relationship is not as strong as it used to be, that's the problem. I want it to be better Therefore, we've got a problem to solve. I want to solve that problem. Rather than starting to feel wounded and say, well, I'm going to wound back in kind because I feel like I need to retaliate. As soon as we start keeping points, it's done. It's going to go right down a slippery slope and, and it's going to be awful. It's not going to end well. Stop scoring points and start solving a problem. Stop being mean, bad-tempered, and angry, says Ephesians 4.31. Quarreling, harsh words, dislike of others, should have no place in your lives, especially, I would add, in your own marriage. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven you because you belong to Christ. Number six, I'm committed to working through this. I think what we're going to celebrate in just a few minutes in a 50-year marriage that's still going strong despite ups and downs is the fact that this couple right down here, Dennis and Marcia, has probably said something similar to this a thousand times in the last 50 years. I'm committed. I know things are rough right now. I know we're going through a season that is so difficult, but I am committed to working through this. They wouldn't be here if they hadn't remained committed to that. Now, I don't know which phrase they use to say that, but their actions certainly reveal it. They've been committed to making it work. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. They've sought the kingdom first, and they're reaping the benefits of all that which has come. Don't grow, I'm going to repeat this again because it's so important. Let's not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Let's pray together. 
Father, I would love to see strong marriages lasting the test of time. I would love for couples to stop keeping points and to start solving problems. I would love to see them building each other up, giving each other compliments because they're putting the other spouse first over themselves, not seeking the spotlight for themselves, but always looking to build up their spouse. I'd love to see them learn how to say they're sorry when the Holy Spirit convicts them where they've used their pride and gotten in the way and, and where they've sinned against their spouse, where they've harmed them or hurt them emotionally. I pray that all this would happen because couples would see that as we start sowing into our spouse's lives, all the things we would love to see coming back later and greater than we've sowed them, I pray that we would have this new commitment rising up in a generation of godly spouses so that we could celebrate a lot of 50-year anniversary celebrations from here on out. That would be my hope, Father. And I pray that all those celebrations would point to you as the source of all that because they would have sought first the kingdom of heaven in their marriage. These things I pray with great gratitude for the anniversary that we get to celebrate today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. 